clearly one of the concerns is the ways in which pornography suggests to young men that women are not fully human. They're not multi-dimensional human beings with, you know, the, who are smart and fun and courageous and uh, capable and all of those things. They are first and foremost and perhaps only sexual beings and they're lesser than men so they don't deserve to be treated with, with respect. I think that's going to leave a lot of people lonely. My name's Andrew Lee and welcome to The Good Life a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. In the mid-2000s, Marie Crabb was working as a youth worker with Brophy Family Youth Services when she became aware that many of the troubled young men she was assisting had poor relationships with their partners and watched a lot of pornography. As someone who's worked on sexual violence prevention for more than two decades, Marie became increasingly interested in the role of pornography in shaping modern sexuality and relationships. It led her to produce two documentary films, Love and Sex in an Age of Pornography and The Porn Factor. She's also produced In the Picture, a resource to support secondary schools dealing with the rapid changes in the nature of pornography and how young people consume pornography. A warning to regular Good Life listeners, this is an episode about pornography. I think it's an important question in terms of thinking about how one lives a good life. But... If you're listening with children, you might want to be aware that we're going to be talking about porn for the next hour or so. Marie, welcome to the podcast. So hasn't porn always been around? I mean, what's changed? So I think there are a number of things that have changed significantly. Uh, I think something... Pornography probably has been around forever at some level. If we think about porn being sexually explicit media, the primary purpose of which is sexual arousal, which is a kind of a neutral, commonly accepted definition of pornography, then there's been sexually explicit images, you know, probably since people started creating images. I remember the walls of Pompeii, they have uh, little pictures there. Well, indeed, and, and you know, and perhaps that are primarily intended to arouse. Um, but never before in human history have we had such an incredibly huge amount of content that is so very accessible, like an endless supply of high-definition content at the click of a button. And in the, develop, in the sort of evolution of technology that has made that possible and the enormous growth in the industry that produces that content, there's also been a shift in the nature of the material. So um, in particular, a move towards uh, significant proportions of content showing high levels of aggression towards women. Uh, racism, degradation and humiliation, you know, it's not actually about sex and sexual arousal at some level. That it, It's like contemporary pornography is, is conveying a whole range of really, what I would say, really problematic messages about gender, power, aggression, pleasure, consent, race, bodies, sexual health. Um, so that, that is a shift. 
So I'm guessing that would be somewhat surprising to uh, those of our listeners who aren't regular porn consumers and who might think of the internet as being a place where people go to get an online version of Playboy magazine. But, but what do people see when they go online? So people, if people are looking at mainstream pornography, the kind of material that you can access freely and widely and anonymously online, then they're likely to be seeing uh, moving imagery of at least well, of one, two or many more people engaging in sexual activities. Uh, they're sexual activities that are created for the viewer, not for the participant. And so, um, you know, often th there's a sense in which porn sex is is kind of more extreme and uh, like like extreme sports versions of sport. You know, so th mm. so it's partly for the wow factor or the shock factor. And according to people in the industry who we, we've interviewed people in the international porn industry for our films, the kind of content that is the most popular with a consumer is, is aggressive. So, and in particular, it's aggressive towards women. And this is also backed up by academic research. A study of 50 of the most popular pornographic videos found that 88% of scenes included physical aggression and 48% of scenes include verbal aggression, and that aggression is overwhelmingly directed towards women. So 94.4% of that aggression was directed towards women. So you're basically guaranteed, if you're watching a popular porn movie, that there's going to be aggression in it. Well, it's, it's certainly if you were to look at a selection of porn, porn films you know, online, there's going to be aggression within most of them, yes. if not all of them. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so the aggression includes you know, for example, gagging in 54% of scenes, choking in 27% of scenes, spanking in 75% of scenes. In real life, if women are being choked in an intimate relationship, that is a red flag for intimate partner homicide. So people working in family violence services would uh, be very concerned about women who are reporting being, being choked. So the industry eroticises practices that in the real world are, um, as in, in the non-performed world, are, um, are things that happen to people and, you know, they happen to women in intimate contexts with enormous negative consequences. So just to put my economist hat on for a moment, uh, presumably this says something about the kind of underlying demand. Uh, and it's, I suppose it's sort of obvious to me that consumers would prefer uh, video to stills. Um, you know, most of us watch movies rather than flicking through photo albums. But it's, it's, a, it's somewhat surprising to me that there's such a strong consumer demand for aggression. Do you worry about what that says about the four billion men in the world? I do worry about what it says. And, and it's actually why I do this work. If... If pornography was people largely being nice to each other and looking like they were having a great time, mm. then I, I would, certainly wouldn't be doing this work. It's um, it's the gendered nature of the aggression and the high level of aggression that is why I'm interested in addressing pornography and its influence. And I think that it raises very significant questions about the state of gender relations and... Um, and I think that there's something sort of chicken and eggish in it, as in I, I don't I don't think that so you know we know that uh, that 
young people, so for example, young men are much more likely than young women to be active consumers of pornography as as men are more likely to be active and enthusiastic consumers than adult women. Um, and one study of, of young men, for example, found that the mean age for first actively seeking porn out was 12.3 years. So I don't think that your average 12.3 year old wants to see women being gagged and choked and spanked when they first mm. search for sex or bodies or women or whatever it is that they're looking for. And yet if that's what they see repeatedly, then uh, they're likely to become desensitised to the level of aggression or yes. degradation that they see. So it's not like the marketplace all says this is what we want. However, it's clear and the industry is clear that the marketplace at some level is saying this is mm. this is what we want. Now, whether that's because uh, there's a there's a, a desire for something that keeps pushing the edges, that feels more out there, more challenging, more confronting, you know, to, to kind of keep that edge of desire, or uh, as a, a female ex-porn performer who we interviewed in, in Budapest in Hungary uh, described, she she actually suggested that the increase in aggression towards women was because of the rise of feminism, meaning that many men no longer feel sure that they are the boss. This is, this is her language. They're no longer the, sure that they're the boss at home or in the workplace, and porn provides a way of men getting women back so they feel like they in porn they can feel that they're in control that they're dominating and not only does this woman you know on the porn screen uh, look like she's happy to be with him she's happy for him to do whatever he wants to her and she'll relate as though she she loves that so it's like a I guess what that porn performer was suggesting was that pornography is a hyperbolic backlash. Mm. You know, it's there's been a shift in gender relations, and for a long time, there's been you know a certain percentage of men, or a sense socially and culturally that men's to be a man means to be in control, to be dominant, to have respect through being you know the controlling, the controlling one, and. Um, with the rising formal gender equality that we've seen in countries like ours, there's a sense in which there's a crisis in masculinity. Mm, mm. Now, I think that is a very tragic reading of the state of men's masculinity and of gender relations, but I suspect she's also onto something there, that there is some element of pornography appealing to what is, we hope, actually a fairly outdated model of masculinity that sort of the porn props that that up for men who are feeling insecure about their sexuality. Now, I'm not suggesting that men going to porn are thinking that necessarily, as in I think a whole lot of this operates at a relatively subconscious level for many men. Mm. And, part, and that's assisted in pornography's case by the positive responses that we see from the female target of the aggression. So the study that I mentioned earlier found that almost every incident of aggression was met with either neutral or a pleasured or positive response by the target. So the viewer sees a woman enjoying it. She enjoys being subservient, sexually subservient to the male, being hurt by him. And so I think that that is both refreshing in that, you know, we don't want a whole lot of men being sexually aroused by women who look upset by being hurt. It's also very insidious because it, it I think it, it gives um, unrealistic and 
and very dangerous messages to young men and to older men mm. um, around what women like and how they deserve to be treated and you know who men are in their relationship with women. Being a female porn performer must be a significantly tougher job now than it would have been a generation ago too, I suspect. Yeah, look, I think that there's been... There's been very aggressive pornography historically as well, but it's never been so mainstream. And yeah, I think mm. the the difference in the experience for female performers in what might be called hardcore, or, you know, contemporary pornography is pretty different from the centrefold experience that might have been a common experience thirty or forty years ago. Um, it's, I think, it's very difficult physically for female performers and but also significantly emotionally for them you know that that on the one hand they are the star they're put on a pedestal they're told they look great and that was a great scene um but they're also treated appallingly as Mm. in and i know that there's diversity within pornography and people in the industry are very keen to talk about diversity in the industry uh, in the kind of content that's created but I think that there's a lot of commonality as well and so much commonality that it becomes reasonable to use a term like mainstream pornography in a meaningful way and so in mainstream pornography uh, it is very rough on on women when it's heterosexual porn and uh, on some of the men involved in, in gay male pornography which is also a very mainstream genre um, yeah, and I think can I think can be an enormously costly role to be to be playing, which is not to say that there aren't performers who are very keen advocates for their work, of course, and um, would be offended by me saying that I think it's it's very costly. But you don't have to watch very much porn to see the level of cost that there is on women's bodies, and and I would argue on their on their mental well being as well. What's it like for you as somebody who's worked as a uh, violence counsellor to need to, to watch porn that kind of is, is so deeply uncomfortable? Um, few people on the planet, I suspect, have involuntarily watched as much pornography as you. Well, I, don't watch, I don't watch heaps of it. I've had to watch it for the production of films um, and every now and then for a little bit of research. I mean, I, I think that it's it's confronting seeing people Mm. being hurt and hurt in ways that are sexual ways I think part of why I do this work is because I value young people's chance at having relationships and sexuality that feel fantastic you know it can be such a a wonderful part of life your sexuality but it can be also the most painful you know damaging traumatic thing for many people in life and uh, I feel concerned that the mainstreaming of the kind of pornography that is now so accessible undermines many young people's capacity to negotiate and sort of navigate relationships and sexuality that are mutual, respectful, you know, fully consenting, uh, fantastic for everybody who's involved. So that seems to me to be a tragedy. <laughs> And uh, worth worth challenging. It's not to say that I don't think young people can develop those relationships. I just think that that pornography sets up hurdles that are unnecessarily there and unnecessarily high. 
It must be harder to listen to your partner if you have a, a script in your head that you feel that you're uh, you're living out. Yeah. yeah, and I think I think so. I think that there's there's something about having a sense of what sex is meant to look like. I think there's a kind of a performance anxiety that might go on for everybody involved. Mm. Uh, and clearly one of the concerns is the ways in which pornography suggests to young men that women are not fully human. They're not multi-dimensional human beings with, you know, the, who are smart and fun and courageous and uh, capable and all of those things. They are first and foremost and perhaps only sexual beings and they're lesser than men so they don't deserve to be treated with with respect i think that's going to leave a lot of people lonely Mm. you know to not to not be able to engage with a level of intimacy and respect and equality in relationships that uh partly and look i'm not suggesting porn is the only issue here there are loads of places in popular culture and in um you know, in the world around young people that suggest that women are not equal, that, are, that, that women are not important not to be treated with respect. Uh, and we see that actually in politics, you know, and we see that in sporting contexts. We see it in, in action films and video games and in all sorts of spaces. But pornography conveys that message par excellence. Mm, mm. It's a, it's a, a particularly concentrated version of um of gender inequality and we know that gender inequality is the key driver of violence against women yes so in australia you know uh we are delighted to be in a context in which addressing the public health crisis that violence against women is is being taken seriously there's been resources and care and you know um a lot of people working towards those ends now that means that we need to address gender inequality and wherever gender inequality is propagated is a target for violence prevention work and it's clear that pornography is one such place. It's a an increasingly prevalent place and it's also, its influence I think goes largely unchecked. So it often is consumed anonymously and alone or in private spaces where where people are not, um, you know, not critically engaged about it by others. And also I don't think people bring their best critical faculties to their use of porn. You know, people go to pornography to masturbate or for sexual arousal and so they're sort of not necessarily thinking, how is this produced? You know, how do I feel about what what's what's on the screen here and am, am i happy with how someone's been treated are these kinds of sexual practices that i think might actually really feel good and therefore am i happy with shaping my own sexual taste through the you know the connection of the arousal process and viewing that imagery we can actually women we're all plastic we all have some sort of neuroplasticity i don't like coffee but if I was to drink coffee every day for a month, I would probably acquire a taste. And similarly, we can acquire sexual tastes. Mm. So we mm. want to make, you know, I think part of what we want to do is encourage young people to be asking themselves, what do they want to be shaped by? Who do you want to be? You know, who do you want to be as a human being, as a sexual being, as a partner, 
is this what you want to be shaped by or are there other ways of shaping your sexuality that might feel better for you and for whoever you're with? I feel like we need to get a little more explicit for people who aren't regular consumers of porn. You've, you've written about the three signature sex acts that are common to, uh, to, to modern pornography, this gonzo-style pornography. Pornography. Do you want to talk? Would you mind talking through those a little? Sure. So, um, the signature sex acts that I'd identify are um, ejaculation on faces and bodies, uh, what the industry refers to as deep throating, which is fellatio with the penis pushed into the throat, inducing gagging and sometimes vomiting, although you don't usually see that on the screen, and heterosexual anal sex. And uh, so ejaculation on faces, for example, is found in 62.5% of scenes in the most popular pornography. Um, the, the issue, I think, is not that we want to be prescriptive about particular sexual practices. So I don't have a problem with anal sex as long as everybody involved is liking it and there's no pressure or coercion. But we know from research that most women who have, young women who have anal sex don't like it and don't want to do it again afterwards. And you would never know that from watching pornography. Mm. The issue is that pornography deliberately normalises particular practices and ways of engaging in those practices that misrepresent many people's experiences of pleasure, particularly women's experiences of pleasure. And... Um, I say that they do so deliberately because the industry says that that's the case. So they've, you know, directors have talked with us about pushing limits, that it's about, you know, pushing women to see what kind of they can they can cope with and that's part of the appeal because it's seen as getting something more real from from the women on 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 the screen. Um so young women who we've interviewed have talked about their male partners initiating the signature sex acts from porn and the young women often talk about really struggling you know wanting to please their partners wanting to be generous and accommodating in their sexuality but generally not wanting to do what their they or their partners have seen in porn and when we interview young men, they also they talk about aspiring to or indeed initiating what they've seen in porn. And there's a sense in which pornography is kind of setting the sexual discourse. It's saying this is what sex looks mm. like. And the discourse that it's setting is not an aspiration towards mutuality where, you know, mutual pleasure or co consent or respect. It's as we've discussed, you know, what sells is kind of rough sex and it's about pushing women. So if content like that is setting the discourse, then that has very serious implications for, um, well, for mutuality, uh, but also for consent and for sexual assault. You know, I think that sometimes pornography's influence can serve to obscure notions of consent to the point of making sexual assault unrecognisable. You know, if the script that you're used mm. to seeing is women being pushed and hurt, then how in real life do you read what's going on, you know? Yeah, so it's... um. So it is, it is an incredibly pervasive and, uh, and I think kind of powerful, visceral 
influencer. Pornhub, which is probably the world's largest porn site, reported earlier this year that in 2016, 92, just under 92 billion porn films were watched. So by my maths, that's a little over 12 for every man, woman and child on the planet. And they're now the 23rd most popular website, which puts them above eBay and Netflix. That is an extraordinary volume of, of porn being consumed. Yeah. And then presumably, I'm just thinking about young men developing their sexuality. If they're accessing porn at 12 and losing their virginity at 16, then they've had four years in which they're sort of trained to think that those three signature sex acts, presumably without contraception, are the way in, in which sex should be practised. Yes, that's right. So I think that, that most young people, particularly young men, are going to have seen porn before they've had sex and probably before they've kissed or touched the skin of an intimate partner. So the potential for so pornography to be shaping those sexual understandings and yeah. also tastes are really significant. And they're also amplified by our silence. So despite the highly sexualised cultural context lots of young people are growing up in, in places like homes and schools, we really struggle to talk about sex. And when we do, we're inclined to talk about how to not get pregnant when you don't plan to and mm. how to not catch an STI. We're not inclined uh, to talk about arousal, desire, pleasure, negotiating consent. And young people say, you know, what they get about sex is too little, too late, too biological. So pornography is happily stepping in to that, to that sort of vacuum that we leave. And look, some schools, of course, are doing fantastic sexuality education and some parents do fantastic relationships and sexuality education but we know that often it's not happening in either context particularly well uh, so one of the things that I think the mainstreaming of pornography does is provide a mandate to us to step up and do better in our in our relationships and sexuality education with young people so what should what does good parenting look like in a porn era um, and presumably the answer to that is different for boys and girls. Well, I think they're similar. Um, there'd be n some sort of nuance, I suppose, in the ways that we might have the conversation. But I think there are a few elements, and not in order of importance, but it, the f I think the first thing we can do is to seek to limit young people's access and exposure to pornography. And that largely means managing their technology, which I know is very difficult. Uh, but we shouldn't throw this option out. So it means things like filters, supervised access of devices in age-appropriate ways, time-limited use of devices. Devices do not need to be an extension of one's body. It's possible to you know, have use of them for a certain time and then not, and to help young people establish kind of you know, good technology practices, I suppose, for their general well-being as well as because devices are where they see pornography. Just to push you a little bit on the specifics of that, do you favour um, 
blacklist approach or a whitelist approach? I mean, would you actually shut down kids' devices and so there's just a, a fixed list of sites that they can go to, or would you tend to rely on filters that, that say there's a certain list of sites you can't go to? Uh, I think that it partly depends on the age of the child. So what we would do with a four-year-old or a six-year-old is different from what you do with a 16-year-old. Certainly with an adolescent, um, I would favour a blacklist approach because I think young people will need access to things that we can't know that they'll need access to. And so, for example, I would be very concerned about filters that block content to sexual health information or, you know, for young gay, lesbian, bi, transsexual young people to not be able to access um, information that's relevant for them when they may not want to be having that conversation uh, with their with their parents or whoever's managing their technology. So I think it's... We want to err on the side of... Um, you know, I, actually, I don't think that filters are going to be a very effective method to do everything for us so mm. which is why i began with um not in order of importance yes, I, absolutely. you know i think i think there it's worth doing some of that work particularly because we know that porn is marketed really aggressively online and so a six-year-old who's searching for girls doing something or other is likely to see porn unless they have a really good filter and they they probably are not looking for porn at mm, all. You know? mm. So we can stop that unintended exposure, um, particularly for very young children. So at some level we manage their use and uh, I don't think we're ever going to stop children or young people seeing it at all, but we probably can stop them watching some hours each evening, for example, and that's worth doing when we know the risk factors the more they see and the worse content they see, of course, you know, the, the greater the risks and harms to them. The second thing I think that we need to do, and this is perhaps, um, well, the, the next few things are my, my fa more favourite, you know, the sort of areas that I'm more interested in. The second thing I think we need to do is to, is to support young people to critique what they see in media generally, not just in in pornography but to help them to develop critical media literacy and with frameworks to understand things like power and you know inequalities so that when they for example when they see a um, an ad for soft drink with beautiful young people having a great time together they're not learning a lot about soft drink they're learning about gender age beauty ethnicity disability and ability, sexual orientation by the absence or the presence of certain things in mm. that imagery. And we need to help them develop frameworks to critique that, to understand that imagery often has a, a whole range of purposes, um, which may not all be all obvious to us. And so we don't need to show them porn to help them build those skills. In fact, I don't advocate showing young people porn. Um, it's not legal. But I also don't think that we need to do that in order to support them to critique it. We can begin when they're very young with children's advertising and television and then get more explicit in our conversation as they get older. So we might talk about sexualised media like music videos mm. and you know advertising and gaming and then um, have more explicit conversations about pornography specifically as they, as they hit an age where that seems appropriate, which will be different for different children and young people um, but uh, 
you know, it might be it might be that we have a more overt conversation about the kinds of things you see in pornography when they're in early secondary school. Uh, but we might talk about sexualised media when they're in mid to upper primary school. Yes. Um, then I think we need to help them develop skills. So they might be great at critiquing the sorts of messages that they see in pornography um, and in other media, but then how do they respond to peer group pressure to watch it? How do they respond to pressure from an intimate partner to mimic it? And they're the same sorts of skills we want them to develop around a range of other wellbeing issues. And I also think part of our job is to inspire young people. So we need to help them catch a vision. This is not about saying sex is no good, quite the opposite. This is about saying relationships and sexuality can be great, but we need to help them see what that can be like, you know, and so that means I think having conversations about, and you might not use these words, but that are about respect, mutuality and consent, whether, and you might also talk about love, where respect, mutuality and consent are absent in a sexual engagement, someone is going to be very unhappy. It might be the worst thing that's ever happened to them. Where those three things are present, it's likely that everyone involved is going to be having a great time. And then, of course, those things happen on a scale. They're not sort of either there or, or not necessarily. So, And what we want, I think, is to help young people catch a vision for how great it can be when those things are present. So that means they need to see us, the adults in their lives, relating respectfully mm. in whatever contexts. And I think it means we need to talk about sexuality, even though it's uncomfortable for many of us. And we haven't had it modelled you know, like many of us didn't get sex talks. Uh, we certainly didn't get porn talks, most of us who are, you know, now parenting young people ourselves or teaching them or whatever our role is. So it's, it's kind of new. We need to learn how to do it and to be kind of comfortable about it as a society. Well, the porn talk was in some sense less necessary. I'm mean, thinking back to high school where... Um, Playboy magazines were so expensive that they would be sort of passed around among uh, uh, among teenage boys, and and it was it was in some sense that cost barrier and the absence of the internet, which meant that uh, porn just wasn't very it wasn't very prevalent, uh, and that seems the the transforming fact today. Yes, and the, and the prevalence of it then shapes the nature of the content as mm. producers need to find an angle that will sell in that yes. flooded marketplace. And, um, and apparently what sells is, is aggression. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what about for um, gay and lesbian teens? I've certainly heard it said that for uh, young gay men and les lesbian women ca uh, coming into their sexuality, sometimes there's a, a real sense that uh, they don't see themselves in the real world and, and pornography can actually be a way of making them feel comfortable in their own skin. Uh, do you see that as, as, a, as a reasonable argument for porn? Is, is gay porn more uh, egalitarian in some sense? So I think I certainly have heard uh, young people talk about feeling that they can see themselves in pornography in a way that they haven't been able to in the world around them. Um, and 
so and I think particularly for young gay men there's a sense in which consumption of pornography is an almost essential component in the development of sexual identity it's just so it's it's you know it's an accessible way of seeing that you're not alone there are other people who are attracted to people of the same sex but I was fascinated with my colleague Dave Paulette and I were fascinated when we first started interviewing young gay men to hear them describing the gender power aggression dynamics in gay male pornography and you would think that when it where all the characters are male there's no need for gendered identities in the same sorts mm. of you know dichotomous way that we do the binary male and female but what they described to us was a feminized male being treated with the same sort of disrespect and aggression by a hyper masculine male as the way we see women being treated in straight porn which i think is fascinating you know it's um it's as though gender roles are so powerful that uh i don't know that gay male pornography can manage to communicate misogyny in the absence of women is really quite quite a feat um so i think that on the one hand you certainly can make the case about pornography playing some role in liberation for young people who don't see their sexual identity reflected in the world around them in, in the same sorts of ways i think also we want to ask some really critical questions about the ways that it is that that pornography is representing same-sex sexuality mm. uh, and whether indeed it is liberating uh, one of our films we've interviewed uh, um, an author called Christopher Kendall, who wrote a book about gay male pornography, and um, and he also talks about the significant level of racism in gay male pornography, where we see you know stereotyped representations of different racial groups, and uh, so for me there are there are real questions in there about what's what's liberating as mm, well you know mm. these things are all connected to each other for young women who are attracted to women um, by far the most common representation of women having sex with women in porn is material that's made for a male heterosexual consumer it's not right. made for lesbians so there is lesbian porn made for lesbians and by lesbians but it's um it is a much more minor segment mm. of the of of the sort of porn um genre than than material that's made for a male heterosexual which is actually one of the largest genres and so lesbian porn often comes up as one of the most searched or viewed categories in in porn sites not by women no or not by lesbian women often so same-sex porn might have some role but sounds pretty pretty problematic on uh, on, on on a range of dimensions yeah i, th I think i think that there's um yeah i i, I think that the, we we want to ask questions of the sorts of representations that are being conveyed and not just think not just assume that because mm. it's showing same-sex sexuality that that means it's all good so for an ethical adult bloke listening to the conversation should he think of pornography is more like alcohol or ice uh, can you have a little bit of it and it's okay or 
should you really stay away from any contact because there's a risk of spiralling into a bad place? Well, I think there are a number of elements to consider. I'm not sure if I want to answer something quite so clearly as alcohol or ice. You know, I think um, the alcohol... Yeah, so I think one of the things to consider is the production. You know, uh, how do you feel about where and how this content was made? Are you sure that the people in it were consenting? They're not someone who's been pressured or coerced or trafficked. Um, were they? Did they produce it in safe conditions? Did they have rights as workers? You know, um, and how can you be sure about all of those things too? Because even when sometimes on, you know, in some particular kinds of porn, you see a, an interview with the performers saying that they're consenting. Well, all of that is a performance. Of course, they're doing it for the camera. Now, that it may be genuine, but we don't know that either, do we? Mm. Like, if that's part of what's expected. So I think there are questions about consumption... Uh, sorry, about production that, that are at one level. And then there's also the questions around what do you want to be shaped by? You know, is, is, this, is this how you want your sexuality to be shaped and... For, you know, is is it is solo with the screen in your hand how you want to do your sexuality if that's what the choice is? You know, maybe you're watching it with a partner and exploring things that you're both into. Then that's another that's another conversation, a different way of thinking about it. Um, there's something else in there I was going to say. Then I think also that even the very best pornography, for me there's still questions around objectification. Um, if it's not like it's not an educational piece that you're kind of looking at to learn something from, if you're using it for masturbation and arousal, then what do we do with questions around objectification? You know, can you hold on to that the person you're looking at on the screen is a multi-dimensional human being who deserves your respect and your care, um, whether or not you know them, or yeah, or is or is there something kind of intrinsically objectifying in a way that is problematic? I the project that I coordinate is not anti-porn, so I'm and I don't think I'm conceptually anti-porn, as in I'm I actually haven't spent a lot of time thinking through that issue because I think you start having uh, a conversation about content that is pretty marginal it's not what most people are watching mm. when you're thinking about ethical porn um, I know that people talk about that there are increasing amounts of it created there are increasing amounts of porn you know there's just an enormous amount of porn made so I'm not saying it doesn't exist but I think in order to be consuming pornography that's more ethical you probably need to be paying for it and that's not what lots of people do. Um, and you might need to be searching fairly hard to find it. And I'm, yeah, I, so for your ethical male who's listening, thinking, what do I do with it? I, I think what I'd encourage people to do is to ask hard questions. I can understand certainly in your role and uh, reporting on the industry and working with education programs that you wouldn't want to be seen as somebody who is just just say no 
But so much of what you said does, does seem to point in that direction, does seem to suggest that uh, if, if it isn't heroin, cocaine and ice, then you know, it's got enough common characteristics with uh, uh, extremely dangerous and addictive substances that uh, the careful consumer should probably stay away. Well, I think that um, I think that mainstream pornography has a whole lot of problems. Mm. Yeah, I, I absolutely do think that it does. Um, and and I, I guess part of what I what I say to young men is it is a choice to not watch pornography. It is a valid choice that you can make. There's no biological imperative to consume pornography. In fact, never before in human history have we had endless supply, endless novelty, you know, of this kind of content. Mm, so mm. Um, it, it is a valid choice for you to make and maybe no one's talking about that with some young people. But then if you are going to choose to use it, then what sort of a consumer are you going to be? Are you going to be a, a choosy consumer? You know, what if you were never to consume content where someone looks like they've been hurt, degraded, where you can't be sure that they were consenting... Um, that's going to cut quite a lot of content out. Mm, mm. So you might you might argue, so I would probably argue a harm minimization approach, which is more like an alcohol, you know, conversation. But I would but I would also want to talk about the the levels of harm associated with you know its production and its consumption some of which I think are just not very obvious, as in we are so used to seeing women being sexually subservient and sexualized that we perhaps don't have alarm bells in our heads saying, hang on a minute, she's a human being. So That point about non-consumption of porn being a valid choice is so interesting. I, I hadn't thought about it from that angle before, but uh, you know, to, to talk to boys about the fact that um, their dads, their grand grandfathers, in most cases, didn't grow up with the internet around. So by definition, didn't grow up consuming internet porn. And so the, the role model men in their lives managed to, to move through their teenage years without this tsunami of, uh, in many cases, violent images. Yeah. yeah. And, you, and you mentioned addiction, and I don't sort of, I don't talk about addiction in relation to pornography. I do, I do think that um, it's possible to have compulsive use of pornography, to feel out of control of one's use of porn, to be watching more content than you want to be watching, mm. or to be watching the sort of material that you're not comfortable with using and yet feel drawn back to it. And some people would argue that, that that's addiction and um, I just I don't talk about addiction because then we'll end up in a discussion about the science of addiction. But I think for, for you know, the purposes of the, 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 the meaning behind that is that it is content that's for some people they'll find... Um, uh, you know, compelling in a way that is compulsive and unhealthy for them. I don't think that that's how it is for everybody. Um, however, I would want to argue that a lot of what passes as just normal porn to consume is deeply problematic content that we ought to, even if we don't feel uncomfortable about it or we don't feel compulsive in our use of it, we ought to be asking harder questions as individuals, but from my perspective, more importantly, as a society. 
you know, is this how we want the sexuality of the 21st century to be defined and shaped, particularly for young people? And my answer is no, we can do better. Marie, you've had this fascinating uh, career moving through youth work and uh, to now become one of Australia's leading experts in pornography. Uh, looking back at how your career has unfolded, uh, what advice would you give to your teenage self? So I, I, think, I think I would say to myself, probably not, probably, you know, partly shaped by my experiences in my career, but um, I'd say be ambitious. Think big. There's stuff to do, you know. The world's a big place. There are lots of things that are fantastic about the world, but there's a lot of things that need to be changed. And um, you can play a role in being, you know, in part of that. And we all can. Uh, and I think what, as, a, as a teenager, I was pretty social and pretty cruisy and not, you know, I kind of wanted to do fine at school and get on with life, but I wasn't... I wasn't thinking ambitiously about what I might do with my life mm. and how I might contribute. And um, it's, yeah, it's been a fantastic journey to go on to now feel like I'm in a position where I can contribute. And, I, and I'm actually not particularly passionate about pornography. I'm interested in equality and, and gender inequality in particular. Um, gender addressing gender inequality. Um, so I won't stay working on pornography for the rest of my life, I don't think. But it's been it's been fantastic to be to be able to learn and grow in this work and be in a position to be able to contribute. That's really useful to for me to, to have your work on pornography situated in that broader conversation around equality. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? I think when I was a child and probably an, an adolescent, I used to think that adults had it all worked out. <laughs> you know, like adults are mature and have a whole lot of knowledge and kind of have their lives together. And as I've grown into an adult, I realised that we're actually kind of just bigger kids, you know, like we may grow into being more mature and certainly I feel more competent and confident and all of those things but we're still vulnerable you know frail um we stuff up we do the wrong thing by people we you know it's not like you sort of you hit a certain age and you've got it all together when are you most happy I think there are lots of times when I'm happy I'm happy often and in different settings so uh, I'm happy in in nature, you know, when I'm somewhere beautiful. I'm happy when I'm engaging with people who I'm enjoying, people who I love or even people I don't know but that I'm, you know, enjoying their company. I'm happy when something that I've been working on for a period of time comes together, you know, when there's successes and um, exciting things that happen. Uh, yeah, so a, a mixture and probably I'm happy when there is a mixture. You know, I wouldn't just be happy in nature and I wouldn't just be happy engaging with people or, you know, being successful in whatever. What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? 
again I think it's probably a combination of things so there's probably not a single thing I guess you might one might say balance but I know we're meant to say that um that I don't know that it's actually often the things outside of work like our connections with our family and people we love and those kinds of things that um are what gives us life but I think for me it's it is I actually feel like my mental well-being is also partly significantly um contributed to by my work so actually feeling engaged and Mm. energized and but having a combination of that with other things I recently last year I took up hockey because my um my kids had said to me for some years you should play hockey with us and so I now play hockey on a team with two of my daughters and I'm terrible at it but um as I've never played before in my life but I like doing something active and uh, it's been great doing that with my kids and also with, you know, all the other women that I play with and against. So I think that, yeah, that in the mix of in terms of the sorts of things that I do that keep me well, um, I think something active, stuff that's social, stuff that's fun and stuff that's getting me thinking. It would be good for your kids too to see mum as a beginner rather than just an expert so I imagine yeah. uh, putting yourself in that slightly more vulnerable position yeah I think it's probably good for all of us to do some things that we're not good at mm. yeah and um uh yeah I'm sure I'm sure that that's I think they probably have a good laugh at me here and there which is fine <laughs> <laughs> do you have any guilty pleasures chocolate excellent yeah and finally which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life this is a hard one, I think. But I, the, the thing that I've come up with is I'm going to say an experience. When I was in my early 20s, I visited El Salvador just after the war had finished there. And um, I was there for a few months and I lived with and visited people whose life had been so profoundly different from mine. I come from a context that has been safe, Uh, you know where I've been cared for and loved and um, not at real risk from anyone in government or you know I've been somewhere where it's a privileged position in the world and so to spend time with people who'd been tortured and raped and whose communities had been burnt and you know people had disappeared uh, I came away from that experience feeling like I couldn't live my life in such a way that didn't acknowledge that those realities of inequality exist. So and that can mean different things for different people. And of course, I knew that there was inequality beforehand. Like we, you know, we're exposed to to that at some level. But I think going and sitting and living with people, and I actually got profoundly unwell while I was there and ended up in a cholera quarantine in outback El Salvador wow. with people with cholera around me. I didn't have cholera. But um, it was kind of a feeling like a near-death experience as well. That, um, yeah, the combination of those things made me think I actually need to, I need to live a life that responds to the realities that are unfair, you know, not okay globally. And, um, and then I guess I've tried to find different ways of doing that since. So the experience of seeing that 
degree of profound suffering inspired you to, to live a bigger life? Yeah, I think so. And also it wasn't like, so there was profound suffering and in it there was also joy. So, you know, uh, singing and dancing and beautiful people who've cared for each other. And I stayed with one family who had run a hospital in their home. It was a mud brick home with a dirt floor and they had up to 70 people sometimes staying in their home that who they were caring for who'd been hurt, injured during the war in a remote community, you know, three hours hike from the, from the nearest road. So incredible, and children with smiling faces and, you know, who, who lived in that environment. Mm. It was mm. their, was their home. And, um, so I think that, uh, yeah, it wasn't just that there was suffering. Um, so the challenge I think is, yeah, is to somehow respond in a way that, that honors an awareness of the inequalities and also embraces joy and hope and you know love and care and respect mm. that's a wonderful point on which to finish marie crab thanks very much for joining us in the good life podcast today thanks for having me thanks for listening to this week's episode of the good life we love getting feedback so please leave us a rating or a comment on apple podcasts formerly known as itunes Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.